It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and not uh, as simple you know, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened so, up so many more doors. The show is called The, the deal. deal. Listen to The Deal wherever you get your podcast, And watch on Bloomberg Originals, Bloomberg Television, or BTV+. Welcome to What You Missed This Week. I'm Scarlett Fu. This podcast has the best and most interesting interviews from the Daily Market Closed show that I co-anchor with Joe Weisenthal, Caroline Hyde, and Romaine Bostic on Bloomberg Television, What You Miss. Our aim is to take you beyond the headlines and bring you unique perspective on the week's top stories and those you may just have missed. This week, Mario Draghi issued a last parting stimulus shot before stepping down from the European Central Bank. The central bank cut interest rates 10 more basis points below zero to minus 50 basis points and announced plans to start open-ended bond purchases. But the policy decision prompted an unprecedented revolt, with the ECB governors representing the core of the euro area economy resisting this resumption of QE. We discussed the monetary policy move with Danny Blanchflower. He's a former Bank of England Monetary Policy Committee member and an economics professor at Dartmouth. We began by asking Danny whether this comprehensive stimulus package guarantees that no action will be taken by the ECB for the rest of the year. Well, I don't think it does. I mean, the forecasts were pretty weak. And the evidence, I think, is gathering, not least that, I mean, he's right to say the risks appear to be to the downside. It certainly looks that Germany and probably the UK are headed to recession. I think uh, uh, the, the, the quote you just gave just then, I agree with almost everything he said. You need fiscal help. Uh, I think the risk, as I say, are to the downside in gathering. But I think the prospect of recession is actually higher than, than he suggested. But they're actually taking action. It makes me think back to 2011. What a contrast in the same kind of circumstances. These, these folks you talked about from Germany and other places were against doing stimulus. They raised rates twice and that was disastrous. So what we've got here are uh, an amazing story here, if you like. We have negative rates of minus 0.4, and now we're going to cut them by minus 0.1 and lower. And I'm about to start, start teaching my Dartmouth students about macroeconomics, and none of the textbooks have <laughs> negative interest rates in them. So we're having to rewrite the textbooks. And think about in the U.S., the U.S. is cutting, talking about cutting rates from 200 basis points, whereas Draghi's got them at minus 0.4. And there are other countries, Japan, Switzerland, Sweden, that have negative yeah. rates. And I'm afraid that the textbook stopped. And so that's part of the story. <laughs> I love the fact that you're having to <laughs> rewrite the textbooks. But Danny, interestingly, yeah. you're hearing, you're pointing out the difference between Europe and the US. And another notable character here in the United States, of course, President Trump has been yes. doing exactly the same thing today, saying look, the European <laughs> Central Bank right. acting quickly. It cuts rates 10 basis points. Yes. They're trying and succeeding in depreciating the euro against a very strong dollar and hurting US exports. The Fed sits and sits and sits. They get paid to borrow money while we 
are paying interest. When you teach your Dartmouth <laughs> College students about the problems or the benefits of actually paying right. interest, I mean, this isn't a great situation to want, is it, to have negative interest rates? Well, it's, no, it's not a great interest to want. And I've been critical a lot about Trump's policy in the trade war. But I think I've, I've said on several occasions, I think he's right. The, 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 certainly several of the moves by the Fed were in error. Um, I mean, to argue that you should go negative, I mean, I think that's a stretch too far. But I think he's right. The Fed shouldn't have raised rates uh, as much as it did. Certainly four or five of those rate rises look to be in error. The markets are actually, with him and with me, pricing in cuts. Um, I, think, I think, so he's right on that score. And I think the evidence is that the global economy is slowing in the US, impacted by the Fed. And in Europe, we haven't talked about the other one, which is Brexit. Mm -hmm. And obviously, Brexit looks to be bad for growth. I mean, people are talking about if you have a no deal Brexit, that's going to lower GDP growth in the UK by five percentage points. But the IMF rightly has said Brexit itself is a global is a is a downside risk to the global economy. So you have this confluence of things coming through uh, and it's hard to see much move on monetary policy and, uh, and Draghi's right where are the fiscal guys Draghi said where are the fiscal guys mm. the governor of the Bank of Australia has been cutting rates saying the same thing yeah. We've only so far we can go get the fiscal guys on board and we haven't heard from them yeah. so Trump's right but where 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 are the fiscal authorities here okay so they, that question the monetary authorities need help where, the, where are the fiscal guys seems to be the eternal question here through this uh, recovery. Yeah. If that's the case, does it come better coming from, does it sound better coming from Christine Lagarde's mouth than Mario Draghi's mouth? Will she be able to do a better job well, maybe convincing some of the politicians to do just that? I think that's a really great question. I mean, think about what we've seen. We've seen economists, we've seen Draghi and economists, we've seen Carney, King, Bernanke, Yellen, economists trying to deal with the technicalities of how the economy is moving. But in a sense, the, the, the importance of, of Lagarde's appointment is she's not an economist. She, I mean, Powell's not an economist either, but she is very much about political yes. action, about trying to understand the policy. That's what she did at the IMF. And I think her appointment is really excellent because the politics of how you get pressure on the Germans and the Austrians and so on is going to be a really big deal. And we're seeing this in the United States. We're seeing the politics of the president of the United States coming after the Fed chairman and four other, he appointed the Fed chairman and four other members of that committee. He appointed them. So politics going forward when the central banks have little ammunition is going to be important. But I think these politicians are going to have to start to turn on the Congress, on the British Parliament, on the German government, on the Austrian government. And that's a new world we're in as the global economy slows again. There's a growing risk of a strike at General Motors. Union leaders from across the U.S. are flying to Detroit this weekend to debate the latest contract, which is set to expire Saturday night. They have to decide whether to submit the deal to their members for a vote or face a walkout. On Friday, leaders of the United Auto Workers Union extended contracts with Ford and Fiat Chrysler indefinitely, which puts added pressure on bargainers for both sides and makes GM the target company and focus of bargaining. We spoke about the situation with Harley Shaken. He's a labor economist and professor of labor relations at UC Berkeley. His research explores issues at the intersection of information technology, work organization, labor, and globalization. 
We began by asking him why the risk of a strike was so high right now. Uh, these are a critical set of negotiations. It's defining for the company. They want to compete in, a, in an industry that's going through a transformation with electrics and, and autonomous vehicles. For the union, it is equally pivotal. They want to see that, but they want to ensure their members have job security and that they share in those gains. So their demands are higher wages uh, and some broad changes in the various uh, classifications of workers. There are many temporary workers. There are those hired since 2007 that earn far less. They were far apart when these negotiations started. We're in the end game now, and it's really about how U.S. manufacturing competes in the global economy. Professor Shaken, I come from far afield in the UK where well, strike action is really quite common to a certain extent and British Airways are busy at it as I speak. How monumental is this to see it in the United States, see it in the auto sector and potentially therefore see it spread across from just GM? Uh, this is something that has become increasingly rare in the United States. In the last several years, we've had an uptick in strikes, but way beyond what it was, say, in the 70s or even into the 80s. In the auto industry, the last major strike at General Motors took place in 1998, uh, and that turned out to be very disruptive. So these things are rare, but these issues are pivotal. You We've got a lot of workers who gave major concessions when GM went bankrupt and the industry virtually collapsed a decade or so ago. They've regained some of it, but they want to regain more and they want a sense that they're stakeholders and sharing in the gains rather than potentially the victims of a more competitive GM. So, Professor, I understand the idea of them wanting a little bit more of a share uh, of, of uh, sort of the regress that GM has gotten uh, over the last couple of years. But at the same time, uh, there's talks about uh, job security. There's talks about keeping specific plants open when a lot of the sort of benefits, I guess, that GM has gotten over the last couple of years has been the flexibility to shut down plants like the one in Lordstown and to walk away from some other projects. If they don't have that flexibility, does it get to a stage where then the profitability and, and of course, what the union was sharing then is sort of put at risk? Of course, that is a risk, and the flexibility is critical, and I think the union realizes that. Something else is going on here, though. It isn't simply flexibility or a few slow-selling models. It is major outsourcing. GM remains the largest seller of light vehicles in the U.S., and now has slipped to the third largest employer when for decades it was the largest. At the same time, it has become the largest exporter of light vehicles, pickup trucks, uh, SUVs from Mexico to the United States and Canada. And I think it is that that has workers deeply disturbed. It isn't a question of a transforming industry. It is a question of auto workers earning two to three dollars an hour in Mexico, far less than what they earn in the United States. I'm curious if you look historically what the connection is between incidences of a strike and tight labor markets, because the last brief strike, 2007, really things were still good then before the bottom fell out of the economy. And of course, in 1998, the economy overall was red hot. Now we have a uh, unemployment rate at 3.7 percent. 
Are these the type of things that you consistently see when workers feel that, look, the job market is not that terrible out there and they really feel that the economic conditions give them some leverage and bargaining power? Oh, I think there's some truth to that, and, and it's actually true. Uh, the economic conditions of tight labor market, an economy that's moving along, give workers confidence. But I think there is a great desire on both sides of the bargaining table in Detroit to avoid a strike. For General Motors, it would be very disruptive, unclear if all those sales would be regained. For the UAW and its members, it's costly, uh, and they want to see job security and a successful company. So both sides want to avoid a strike, but it's clear the possibility of a strike is much higher than in the recent past. And in fact, uh, the paradox here is the UAW's clear uh, showing that they are prepared to strike, not posturing, prepared right. to do it, might provoke a settlement more readily because both sides want to avoid that. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. Female leadership is in the spotlight as we approach the 2020 presidential election in the U.S. So I sat down with Barnard College President Sian Bylock to talk about the unprecedented number of female presidential candidates. Sian is a cognitive scientist by training, and her expertise is in how children and adults learn and perform at their best, especially under stress. I began by asking her what it takes to raise a female leader in this current environment. Yeah, well, raising a strong female leader starts early. It doesn't just start in college or after college. It starts very young with kids, letting them know, young girls, that they can do science, that they can do math, that there's no biological reason they should be any different in these areas. And pointing out successes all over the place. We know that seeing role models, seeing prominent women like you succeeding is so important for building young girls' confidence. So what specifically should schools be doing? And here we can talk about whether it's high school, elementary school, um, pre-kindergarten. What should they be doing to improve the performance of women in STEM? Is it about confidence building at a young age and then just kind of going with that? It's about confidence building and also giving girls the skills both at school and at home. Parents are children's first teachers. And if you have a mom who says something like, oh, I'm not a math person, that sends a signal to a young girl. One, it says either you're a math person or you're not. It's not something that you learn through practice, which is how you learn math. And the other is that maybe women don't have to be math people. So even how parents talk about math, that it's something you get better with at practice, that I can see that you can learn is so important for young girls' confidence. What about in helping them learn to take risks? Because that's a big part of it as well, in discovering and learning. And girls at a young age are taught to do what's right and, and follow a prescribed path. I think that's true at all ages. Young girls and women tend to want to be perfect before we take that risk, before we go for that promotion. We need all the evidence, and that's not necessarily true of the men next to us. And so learning to take risks, actually learning to fail, mm -hmm. and using that failure to get up and try 
something else is so important. But not having that failure count against you. I think that's why a lot of women or a lot of girls may not want to try something because if you fail, then you feel like you can't get past that. Yeah, and again, it's going back to this idea that failure isn't an indictment of you. Just because you fail doesn't mean you're bad at this or not intelligent. It means you didn't try the right way. Mm. And so when parents and when teachers, when college professors talk about how girls can succeed, it's about talking about how you learn rather than, oh, you're good at this, you're a leader, you're a math person. These are all things that we can learn. Even performing well under stress is something that we can learn to do. Okay, so let's talk about one area of stress. Uh, the women running for president in 2020, not just women, but men entire, as well. What are your thoughts on the unprecedented number of women who are running for president? Who, what kind of candidate has the advantage in that environment? Well, I think it's great to see so many women there, but of course progress doesn't mean parity. And, and what I look at when I see the candidates is I think about the fact that oftentimes women have been historically excluded from Congress, from running for president, even from the boardroom, from any sort of field. And we know that when you feel historically excluded, when you maybe don't see so many people like you, that you actually can have anxiety, you can worry. And we can see that in the brain. How does a woman's performance change when she's one of several women, whether she's working with them or competing against them versus being the token woman in a field of men? I think it helps to have other people around you, but it doesn't mean the spotlight's not on you. And it doesn't mean that women aren't thinking, am I good enough to be here? They're not worrying about their ability to perform. And I think understanding that those worries are normal and that there are actually things we can do to quiet down those neural alarm signals is really important important. I want to go back to 2016 and some of the lessons we've learned there. Hindsight is 2020, and it's rarely very kind. Um, one of the knocks against Hillary Rodham Clinton's campaign was that while she was more prepared than perhaps any other presidential candidate in modern history, she wasn't maybe adaptable enough. Um, she had her playbook, she stuck with it, but the knock is she couldn't bob and weave, she couldn't deflect, she couldn't change with the situation. Looking back, what do you see? I see one woman who is running for president who has started to define what it means to be a candidate. And I think we need a lot more women in the ring doing that to change what the definition is. If we only have one example, that's what we turn to. But it's really about people's experience, their ability to, as you say, change and adapt and to speak to the American people. That's going to be so important. Right. But the stereotypes loom pretty large. And we've seen how the stereotypes uh, get formed as well. And one of the other knocks against Hillary Rodham Clinton famously was uh, when she was accused of lacking stamina, of being tough. How do women show that they're tough, they have stamina in their own way? Yeah, I think it's about competing differently. And I think actually it comes back to redefining what it means, for example, to take risks or to be tough. So we think of risk taking in financial terms or taking that jump when maybe you're not totally ready or physical terms. But what if we defined risk taking as gaining consensus, as bringing people together, as being willing to hear those hard and different opinions? We know women are really good at that. And so I think some of it for us as consumers of what's happening is to challenge our own assumptions about what it means to truly be a leader. How do you do that? How do you make that idea of taking, um, of seeking consensus as a risk that someone should be taking in this kind of 
environment that's so polarized, that's so yeah. divided. It, it is a risk, right? It's hard to do that. I think we always have to challenge the stereotypes we bring to the table. I mean, men and women have gender biases, and we have to challenge what it is that we're looking at. Are we thinking about the candidate in terms of his or her experience and track record and what they bring to the table, mm -hmm. or are we focusing on stereotypes and how they fit those stereotypes? And you can do that as the candidate yourself, but you can also do that as the consumer of what's happening. When you look at the field of candidates out there, who are you most impressed by? What have you seen that impresses you? If not the person, then uh, the behavior or the action or the approach? I think it's really effective when candidates give specific examples of why they can succeed and why they are the person to um, be a leader. And I think especially with women, when there are questions, stereotypes out there, even if they're unfounded about success, being able to talk about why you should be there, your criteria, not only helps voters understand, but it actually is a technique you can use yourself. When you focus on why you should be at the table, it can give you confidence, it can quiet down those neural alarm signals, and it can help you thrive rather than choke under pressure. So bottom line, how can women best perform under pressure, whether it's in politics, whether it's in STEM, whether it's in finance? Or even sports. Or even sports. Yeah. I think a lot of it comes down to understanding that we do worry, that those worries can really zap our brain power to focus on what's most important. And so there are tools and techniques you can use. One simple one I use a lot is just reframing how I'm feeling. Sometimes you get that sweaty palms and beating heart and you think, oh gosh, I'm going to fail. But there's research that shows that if you actually think differently, remembering that that beating heart is shunting blood to your brain so you can think, mm -hmm. that you're excited and awake rather than failing, just changing your mindset in that way can help you perform better. So I, I sometimes rationalize uh, to myself that the self-doubt is a good thing because it drives me, it's going to push me to work harder and that I'll achieve more. Is that a myth or am I lying to myself there? No, you're not. And actually imposter syndrome, which is this idea that you've tricked everyone into thinking you're smart enough to be there is something that women often fall prey to. And one of the biggest correlates of imposter syndrome is success. We worry then we do really well. And so actually reminding yourself that the what predicts what happens when you worry is that success can be really important. It gets you up and awake and ready to go and reminding yourself that you have the tools to succeed, maybe even thinking back to the last example when you did, mm -hmm. can help put you in the right frame of mind. So that worry is a necessary pit stop. It can be a good thing if you use it in the right way. And finally, we wrapped things up with a look at France. Emmanuel Macron's government now sees its planned 2020 budget deficit coming in higher than initially expected, at 2.1% to 2.2% of GDP. It also sees the economy expanding three-tenths of 1% in the third quarter and maintaining that pace in the fourth quarter. We spoke about the state of the economy with Agnès Pannier-Runacher, French Minister of State attached to the Minister of Economy and Finance. She was in New York to talk about France's fiscal and reform program to potential investors. We began by asking the minister, with so much going on right now across Europe, what's the message to investors? The message I'm delivering is that uh, French is now a, a key country where it's uh, easy to invest because of all the reforms we have delivered those last months and that we have become the uh, top destination for investment, uh, direct investment uh, for foreign investors, uh, for industry and for R&D centers, and by far. 
And we want to show that our commitment to carry on delivering our reforms, we have already achieved labor market reforms, unemployment reforms, civil servant reforms, and this is not yet seen and uh, uh, shared with the investors, and it has to be, and we need to show our commitment to carry on on that, and to show also that we are committed to give an ambitious European agenda at a moment where a new commission will come to power with a new agenda, and we want uh, Europe uh, and European Union Commission to be very ambitious, especially on innovation and investment. Talk to us about investment and France's own investment in itself, fiscal spending. This is what the ECB has been calling for, for many the governments to do some heavy lifting. How much work do you think France is able to do in that respect? Well, we have uh, begun to uh, lower the, the tax uh, pressure on the companies and the people. And uh, we intend to reduce by 17 billion euro uh, during the coming years, so until 2022, uh, the leverage, tax lever on the companies and people. It's a huge amount for France. And uh, it shows also that we can uh, deliver a, a pro-business environment and this is clearly what President Macron has uh, set as rules. We welcome investment, we welcome foreign investors and we are now redeveloping the economy and not only in the French tech which has been uh, ahead in, in the country but also in the industry which is not uh, so obvious for foreigners. You talk about the pro-business environment. Uh, critics would say, though, that France doesn't really push that when you have this 3% digital tax, which took effect in July. I know that there are some discussions with the U.S. over that. What is the state of that right now? Because we understood at G7 that France and the U.S. came to some agreement, but it seems like that's now off the table. No, uh, we come to an agreement at Chantilly and we come again to an agreement in Biarritz during the G7 summit. And we have no uh, fruitful discussions with our American counterparts. And maybe one thing to be shared with everybody, it's not a tax of, uh, on, on, it's a tax of the digital platforms because there is a difference between the taxation of the platforms and the physical platforms by 14%. So this is huge. This is a question of level playing field. And this is why we put that on the table. But to be clear, there will be European actors that will pay this tax. There will be French companies that will pay this tax. And we clearly uh, convey the message that we will remove that tax that, that we have implemented in France last May. We will remove it. The, the, the day we have an agreement at the international level. But if we want to push an agreement, we need to show that we are serious about it and that we want to move forward because it's a major issue and it's an issue that raises a consensus between the governments. It's a major issue potentially for French fitness, for winemakers, for other industries, if we do see tariffs being imposed from the United mm. States. Is this something you worry about in terms of the business environment for the companies that you have? To be honest, uh, the way we have the discussion with our American counterparts uh, leads us to think that uh, uh, those tariffs uh, is not really at stake at that moment. I mean, uh, we really have good discussions mm. and uh, uh, we don't pretend, 
we, we believe that we may have an agreement being under the OECD or uh, being directly with uh, uh, American authorities. But once again, the concern is shared that uh, the digital platforms are not paying uh, what they should at, and this is a question for any country. And all tax is just to put the, the subject on the table. Uh, so I think that now the U.S. government has understood that, that he's ready to discuss. Of course, they will uh, struggle to have a balanced uh, uh, issue, and this is what we want. So we are quite aligned on the issue. I need to ask you about Brexit, of course, because it's, it's the, the huge unresolved issue in the room. France's foreign minister, affairs minister, says France is not prepared to delay the Brexit deadline. But certainly this uncertainty hurts not just UK businesses, but French businesses as well. What would hurt French businesses less, a no-deal Brexit or another Brexit delay with no end in sight? The question we have on the table is that uncertainty is very negative for our businesses. And delaying and delaying and delaying without having any proposals from the UK government regarding what could be the agreement. You know, we have discussed this agreement for 18 months, then we have an additional six months, then we have an additional three months. And what we see in our country is that the investment are stopped when it comes to the UK, mm. and that is very uh, negative for the activity. So no, we ask the British government to uh, give us some proposals. We will review. We are ready for negotiation, for discussions. But we need to have, you know, a discussion around something. You cannot say, I want to leave, but I want to stay. It's very difficult for us. That does it for this episode of What You Missed This Week. If you like this, please make sure to subscribe and rate us at Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. And be sure to tune in to our Market Close show every weekday from 3.30 to 5 p.m. on Bloomberg Television and from 4 to 5 p.m. streaming on Twitter. Thanks for listening and have a great weekend. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and not uh, as simple you know, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened up so many more doors. The show is called The, the deal. deal. Listen to The Deal wherever you get your podcast, And watch on Bloomberg Originals, Bloomberg Television, or BTV+. Plus.